Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. To open up your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 5 as we continue to go through the book of Romans, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the capital of the Roman Empire, the ancient Roman Empire. Romans 5, this week we will study verses 1 to 5. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you will feed us from your word, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here will be acceptable in your sight. You who are our strength and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we saw that verse 1 declares to us, and you remember I made the point that here he switches his pronouns so that now he begins to say we, I, we, And so the Apostle Paul is is getting in touch with his feminine side. He's getting in touch with his uh, tender side. He's getting in touch with his intimate side, with his... The Apostle Paul, from, from this point on, is beginning to be less objective and more subjective, okay? And I'll say some more about that at the end. Now, I was making a joke about feminine masculine, but there is some truth to that. There is some truth to the fact that women tend to be more in tune with the subjectivity of life and men with the objectivity of life. But there's nothing feminine about Paul doing what he does, which is he turns to the people and he says, okay, now we, we. And he says here, verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, what? We, we have peace with God. Last week we saw that this is not something to be taken for granted. And if you looked at the assurance of pardon you read earlier at the beginning of the service, you saw that it's the verses immediately following our text this morning. And did you notice it speaks of the wrath of God? And we just can't go around trying to deny the wrath of God. Wrath and no is helpful to us to do the work we have to do spiritually, okay? There are a lot of things in my life that I don't do right because it's the right thing, but rather because I'm afraid of getting a ticket. I was so irritated to get a ticket from a camera in Chicago recently. A camera. Oh. (laughs) No's and warnings and judgments are helpful. 
okay? All of us are not just running around saying, okay, what's right? I just love to do what's right. That's not how we work. And so it says here that we have peace with God. And that peace is from God's judgment. All right? And that's a serious thing because the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 2 continues this, through whom also... So the word also indicates that it's not just peace with God that we are given when we have faith in Jesus, but it's other things. And now that begins to open up. Through whom also, also what? Well, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. So in other words, it's not simply that we will escape the wrath of God upon the judgment. It's also that we presently stand. Did you notice as I read that, how I read it? Did you notice? I emphasize what? St-d. Stand. Right? It's a firm thing. We stand. Stand and deliver. We stand in grace. Now, why would we have to stand in grace? Well, because everything tries to shake us off grace. Everything tries to deny the grace of God in us. And so we have to stand because everybody's trying to cut us off. All the circumstances are... We're constantly, constantly in danger of being thrown off grace into what? Into the law. Okay? We're constantly being enticed and being taught and being intimidated that it is the law that allows us to stand and therefore we better obey the law or we're not going to be able to stand, right? This is why Luther had to keep preaching on Galatians. He didn't just go through it once. Then he goes through it a second time and he says, I had to go through it again and again because I keep losing the truth of grace. So if Luther loses the truth of grace, you and I are going to lose the truth of grace, so we better get good at standing in grace. I was interested in preparing to preach, reading this by Calvin. He says this. He says sophist, so S-O-P-H-I-S-T, it's where we get our term sophomore. And, and, And I'm sorry if any of you are sophomores, but generally this means stupid, okay? And, and he says, sophists, people that play with truth, okay? People that, that act wise, but they're stupid, right? Sophists do what? Well, they bid Christians to be satisfied with moral conjecture and discerning the grace of God towards them. Sophists, people that talk loudly in restaurants and use big words, all right? Sophists are always trying to tell you that you should judge your relationship with God upon your moral performance. Does this make sense? Sophists are always trying to move you off confidence in the grace of God. The grace in which you stand. You see this. Sophists want to get you off balance. Why? so that they can then sell you a package of moralism and you can stand in the package. And so sophists also, he says, are 
determined to keep you in a state of uncertainty concerning your final perseverance. This is fascinating. So always in history, there have been people who talk loudly in restaurants and use big words. Highly educated people, people with a terminal degree, people who have a seminary degree and then went and got a doctorate in in New Testament at Cambridge. There have always been people who emphasize their learning and their wisdom and their knowledge and use that to try to get you to look to them for the law and for a definition of the law and embroideries around the law and their morals, their their values, their importance. Because then you're what? Well, instead of being a disciple of Jesus, you're a disciple of them. It's very easy to use Jesus in such a way that you end up having the disciples. Are you all with me? And then, in order to help that process to work, that you're dependent on them instead of Jesus and his grace, what they do is they say, now, don't think that you can be secure. And so this was the Roman Catholic Church of the Middle Ages. They would always tell you what? Well, that you can't be secure and you can't have assurance of faith. Why? Well, because then you won't what? You won't be a... You won't be a good Catholic. When I was growing up, I got a kick out of, you know, I played with a, a, with, with a kid in our neighborhood who was Roman Catholic, you know. And I, I always got a kick out of the fact that you'd ask, people would ask me, what religion are you, when I was a little kid? And I would think, well, they want to know whether I'm Baptist or Presbyterian or, the, or a Roman Catholic or something. And so I would, all, my parents didn't teach me this. I'd just always say, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. That's what I am. And so I would ask other people whether they were Christian. Whether they were a Christian. And I noticed that Roman Catholics would never answer the question. Have you ever noticed this? They always say, either I'm a Catholic, or I'm a bad Catholic, or I'm a practicing Catholic. But they're taught not to have the kind of pride that would cause them to say, yes, I'm a Christian. Why? Well, because that's very close to having assurance of salvation. The only way you will stay safe is if you never are sure you've made it. Do you understand this? It's kind of like the way a lot of mothers are with their kids. You know? Keep them in limbo. The child is never convinced that they have ever pleased their mother. Their mother is, you know, I can still hear my mother. She's been gone for years. And I know she still disapproves of me. (laughs) So what we have to understand is that standing in grace is antithetical, it's opposed to perpetual uncertainty. Do you see this? You can't stand in grace and have absolutely no trust in God and in his grace. You can't do it. You either trust in God's grace and you stand in it, or you don't trust in God's grace and you don't stand in it. And so when it says the word stand, 
It's a hard-edged word. Its sound is hard. You have to stand. Okay, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Grace is unmerited favor. And this grace that we stand in is not simply that God has given us new birth, that we're born again, that we're regenerated, that we've passed from death to life. This grace that we stand in is also grace for holiness. It is grace for sanctification, which I used to say that the great doctrine missing in the last century in America is the doctrine of the church. But now I think it's the doctrine of sanctification. I don't think anybody knows that there is such a thing as sanctification, that we become holy. And the reason, of course, that none of us remember that that's something that is included in the grace of God is that sanctification is a hard work, it's very painful, and it doesn't stop until you die. And that sounds pretty much like a prescription of everything America hates. You know, something that's very painful and doesn't stop until you die. I mean, isn't that what it means to be American, is to not have to have something that is very painful and doesn't stop until you die? (laughs) I mean, does America have any faith in suffering? To be American and to not suffer are the same thing. Suffering is for Africa. Right? Guess what? All through history, the people of God have said this. They have said that Christians desire three things with regard to sin. Justification, that it doesn't condemn. Sanctification, that it doesn't reign. R-E-I-G-N. And what? Glorification, that it will not be. So do you live in the knowledge of your sin. Well, if you live in the knowledge of your sin and you have put your faith in Jesus, he's given you the gift of faith, you are now in what is called sanctification. All right? And so your heart cries out to God, wilt thou forgive that sin which I have repented of a year or two and then wallowed in a score when thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. Wilt thou forgive that sin? I've made my sin others' door when thou hast done. This is sanctification. There's no escape from it, and it is extremely painful. Sanctification is hard work. Now, if sanctification is hard work, it sounds as if I'm saying that you don't stand in grace because grace is unmerited favor. So is sanctification God's grace? Yes. God's grace to you is the pain you suffer. And you are to exalt and to rejoice in that pain. Not in the midst of the pain, you are to rejoice in the pain itself. Okay? This grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Now what does it mean to exalt? Well, it means to... um, When I read this, I thought of the account of... uh, the man who was born lame. You remember that Peter and John were going up to the temple to pray. 
excuse me, and we read in Acts chapter 3, Peter said to this man, so he's by the, the gate beautiful, and he's asking for money, right, like the guy's on 3rd Street, and he's lame, and they go up to him and they say, hey, we don't have any money, but what we have, we give to you, okay, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk, <laughs> walk. And seizing him by the right hand, you can imagine he's not just going to stand up. I mean, he knows what life is like with a lame leg, right? So they seize him, (laughs) you know, and they raise him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. Then, this is the part, the exalting. With a leap, he stood upright, a leap, he stood upright, and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. He was exalting in the healing of his leg. Okay? And so this is what the Bible says. The Bible says we will exalt in hope of the glory of God. Now, what is the glory of God? Well, the glory of God is not simply God's glory, which he has, and that should give us exaltation, just the glory of God. But we're exalting in our bearing the glory of God, our reflecting the glory of God, our us ourselves having the glory of God. Us, you and me. Now, let me ask you, do you have the glory of God? Maybe an easier way to answer the question is, uh, 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 does your wife say that you have the glory of God? How many husbands here, their wife just looks at them and says, honey, in you, I see the glory of God. Are you serious? Where's Amanda? Jake raised his hand. He says Amanda says that to him. I don't think so. No. 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 I know Amanda. I know Amanda. What is the hope of the glory of God. Well, the hope of the glory of God is the only way that Christians can live. And the reason it's the only way we can live is that we are very aware of the fact that we don't have the glory of God. We're not finished. We're barely begun. And we are weighed down with our sin. We're not just weighed down with our own sin. Yeah, Amanda, do you tell him that? Yeah, I didn't think so. I couldn't find you. You were hiding. And it's not just our own sin, but we're also weighed down with the sin of the people that we love. Sometimes that's more of a burden than our own sin is because they don't see their sin. And we don't know how to talk to them about it. And so this is the reason we have to stand in grace and exalt in the hope of the glory of God. Because whether we're talking about ourselves, our children, our husband, our wife, our pastors, the hope of the glory of God is what causes us to persevere. And I would say that you really do need to meditate on this statement of exalting in the hope of the glory of God because if you just simply passively think about it, meditate on it, 
or if you intellectually affirm it, this is not exalting, and there's a reason the Bible says we have to exalt, and the reason is the joy of the Lord is our strength. In other words, the exaltation of the hope of the glory of God has to be an active, aggressive act on our part. Exaltation is, is um, it's over the top. It's not going to be sufficient for us to just simply have an intellectual affirmation. We have to be over the top to overwhelm the despair that threatens to pull us down. Do you understand this? I always, you know, I always, well, I always get frustrated with our worship. And it's infinitely better than it used to be. But why is it that in our worship, there's no exaltation? There is exaltation, you know, but there's no exaltation. You know, we do exalt God, our words, you know, the songs, we, it's all exalting to God. But there's no over-the-topness to us, you understand. And if somebody says, amen, we go, amen. And it just frustrates me, and the reason it frustrates me is this is not the way you are in the rest of your life. I don't care how Scandinavian you are, or German. If you get a German drunk in a bar, he can't help but exalt. If you get him to a football match, a soccer game, he can't help but exalt, right? The police have to suppress the exaltation. This is true of IU football games. Everybody there is white, except the players. You notice this? (laughs) Okay. And even the white people exalt. And yet you get us in worship, and somehow we feel that in worship we have to suppress exaltation. And yet Scripture is filled with commands to be self-forgetful and over-the-top in our worship of God. Come on. What is it about your self-image and what you're afraid your wife will think about you that suppresses you in worship? The joy of the Lord is our strength. And so we do exalt. We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. That's not my alarm. I still have 17 more minutes. <laughs> the Apostle Paul has this theme in a few chapters, chapter 8, that he hits it again, okay? And um, let me read it to you. It's Romans 8, beginning with verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who suggested it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Isn't this weird? This is the true environmentalism. But it's not that man, by existing on the face of the earth, is today corrupting the earth. It's that the fall subjected the earth to the same pains as childbirth. Isn't that interesting to think of how women have been subjected to pain in childbirth? And this is the language that God uses to describe creation. Do you ever think of creation as being in childbirth with the pangs of childbirth? It is impossible. The other day I got great delight listening to somebody here at the church talking to Frank about their squash. It was in the office. Frank's a master gardener and somebody... I forget who it was. Oh, Jody. You know, Jody was commiserating with Frank about his inability to, 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 to grow squash. And I just had this sadistic delight. You know? It's like, do you know how many years I've tried to grow squash in Indiana? Up in Illinois, it grew in Indiana. Every single time, the plants, bam! You know, just glorious. And then, they're gone. The butternut, the summer, usually you get some out of the summer squash. And I refuse to plant zucchini. I think the world would be a better place without any zucchini, okay? It doesn't matter what you do. It'll just produce and produce and produce, and you'll eat it until it's coming out of your ears. I don't like zucchini, okay? But the butternut, now that's a good squash, you know? Gardening is an exceedingly risky business. Okay? It's risky. One year the asparagus are horrible, the next year the raspberries, and every year here are the squash. They're worthless. And so, you know, we think about that, and we don't think of it as nature being in childbirth, the pains of childbirth. I went through woods with Mike recently, and he was telling me what trees are valuable and what trees aren't. He looks up the, the trunk, and Mike shows me where there is a slight uh, uh, hump or, or bulge in the trunk, and he says, now that ruins this side of the tree for, you know, 10 feet, you know, and, and then he shows me the difference between a V crotch and a U crotch, that the U crotch actually can be valuable for somebody making a nice day. Okay, so we look at trees, and do we see the scabs and the failures? We look at our gardens, we often sit out on the deck, and we have a, uh, we have a, uh, we have a uh, 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 hummingbird feeder, okay? And the hummingbirds come around this feeder, and it's only like five feet from my head when I'm sitting there. And one day I was sitting in the room looking out the window at the hummingbird feeder. Somebody was in there, and they said, oh, look at the hummingbirds. They're dancing. I said, no, they're not dancing. They're fighting. Hummingbirds never stop fighting. And they're nasty to each other. And they just never stop fighting. Now, am I going to... I've sat there wondering if I should assign a moral content to hummingbirds. Are they moral agents? If they are, they're nasty. They're like bluebirds. I mean, not bluebirds, blue jays. Blue jays are nasty birds. You know? (laughs) Here's what the Bible says. It says, whole creation groans and suffers the pain of childbirth together until now. What is creation waiting for? Creation is waiting for its redemption. Okay? And you and I are supposed to exalt 
and the hope of the glory of God. And that glory will change us and make us holy, make us like Jesus. And it will change creation, and it will make it perfect. Okay? Do you have a desire to see this happen, or are you content with the world that you have received? One of my favorite quotes, and I couldn't find it this morning to give it to you, but it's a quote about humor, and it says that, that humor is always best from Christians because Christians have no trouble acknowledging the disparity between what we know we were made to be and what we actually are. And then it says there will be no humor in heaven because we won't have to mediate the tension. Jürgen has a joke. Here's Jürgen's joke, okay? This is Jürgen. He's here with his daughter, Callan. I'm so happy to see you here. How many years has it been? Seven? Five? Seems like seven. Hi, Ilsa. Welcome. Jürgen has a joke. The joke is, do you know why elephants have red eyes? Elephants have red eyes so that they can hide in cherry trees. Have you ever seen an elephant in a cherry tree? See? (laughs) I like that joke. Do you know what I don't like? I don't like people that don't laugh at jokes. <laughs> Why? Well, because they don't live down on the level that I live at. I need humor to survive. I have to have it. Because why? Well, because I feel the tension between what I am and what God made me to be. And it just weighs me down. The whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? You know how there are some people that you live among, you live with, there's some people who are always giving off the vibes that they have arrived. You know what I'm talking about? And you think, what's wrong with me? They've arrived. But of course they haven't arrived. They're the only ones who don't know they haven't arrived. Right? Who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. We exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about what? It brings about perseverance. And so we don't exalt in the midst of our tribulations. Did you notice? That's not what it says. It says we exalt in our tribulations. In our tribulations. Our tribulations themselves are what we exalt in. Do you understand this? Don't, 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 uh, what's the word? Don't, don't corrupt the text. It says we exalt 
in our tribulations, not in the midst of them. Now, why would you exalt in your tribulations? Tribulations are not something to exalt in. Well, because you have to. If you don't exalt in your tribulations as a Christian, you won't survive them. Instead, what will happen? Well, you'll become bitter. That's what will happen. And you say, well, I can exalt in my tribulations if I get cancer. But why should I exalt in being married to a shrew? I'm not supposed to be thankful for sin. Well, okay, how about you being a selfish narcissist married to a shrew? You say, yeah, I shouldn't exalt in that. I, should, my, I shouldn't expect my wife to exalt in it. I say, okay, so all those things that you said in your vows, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, right? So only in health and only for richer. Is that what marriage is about? No, it's not. We have to live in an understanding way with our husband and wife precisely at the point of their weakness, their brokenness, or their sin. In other words, when the Apostle Paul tells us to rejoice in the tribulations, he is including sin in that. He's not telling us to be thankful for sin, but to the degree that the sin causes you to suffer, is this not something that you should rejoice in? Shouldn't we rejoice that we're fully embarrassed? Shouldn't we rejoice that we pay the penalty for our sins here in such a way that it causes us not to sin again? I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? Of course we rejoice in things that are a result of moral failure on our part and other people's part. That is what a huge proportion of the sufferings of this life are caused by. If we're running around trying to keep track of what suffering is the result of someone's moral failure and what is not, we'll never rejoice because it's almost never that there is not a moral content to the suffering of this life. Do you understand this? I mean, take cancer, for instance. I remember a young woman in our church who I love dearly going into nursing and announcing that almost everybody that's in the hospital is there because either they're too fat or they smoke or they do drugs or something. And remember, I love this young woman. I mean, really love her. But I was so disgusted by that statement. (laughs) Is it true? It's true. Right? It's true. But what kind of person makes that observation? Well, that's the kind of person that when they get cancer is quick to tell you that they've always been a vegetarian and this shouldn't have happened to them. You understand what I'm saying. Look, it doesn't matter whether it's cancer. I mean, even when you get down to the issue of asbestos, you might be innocent, but what about your employer? What about the people that built the building that you were cleaning? Do you understand? There there can be no end to our moralizing in such a way that we never, ever 
have to rejoice in our sufferings. Do you understand this? I mean, even down to the point of the Twin Towers in New York City, okay? So if there's ever a case where America has decided that we should not be thankful and, and grateful for our sufferings, it would be the Twin Towers, right? We're all agreed that the Twin Towers was because of other people's evil and it should not be a source of us giving thanks. And we were perfect and they were awful, right? That's the moral story of the Twin Towers. But... Has it ever occurred to you that God could have been behind the Twin Towers and that it's not accidental that it was the financial district of New York City and that that's probably the source of the greatest wickedness of the United States in terms of our pride? Come on. We have to exalt in the hope of glory and recognize that God sends the difficulties in our life. Why? so that we will learn what? Perseverance. That's why. And learning perseverance is hard. What is another word for perseverance? It's endurance. Endurance, again, is endure. Endurance is not not a soft word. It's a hard word. Is it easy to learn endurance? Any of you? How about the good ship endurance? How about Lord Shackleton? Was that easy? 1915, for 10 months, that ship down at Antarctica sat between ice and was finally crushed in November so that it sank and they had to abandon ship. For 10 months, the good ship endurance sat in the pressure of the ice and what did it do? Well, it was, it, was, it was sort of onomatopoetic. It endured. And then finally it succumbed. And this is an indication of how God deals with us in life, okay? God puts us under pressure. And we are to rejoice in that pressure because without it we will not learn endurance. Okay? So the question is, do you want to endure? And so right now you're going to say, oh yeah, I want to endure, right? And I say, okay, are you willing to pay the price? And you say, well, not really. And I say, well, you won't learn endurance. You say, well, I have another plan. I have a different professor. He's learned a new technique. It's called the new endurance. And that new endurance can happen without there being any pressure on me. And I say, well, why are you giving yourself to a curriculum other than what God has ordained? It says we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, endurance. And perseverance, proven character. Do you want to have proven character? Do you want to have a character that is proven? Or do you want to be soft? What do you want? Do you want to be firm? You want to be soft. What do you want? Uh, 
If you want to be soft, you're not going to have proven character. You know what everybody's going to think about you? Everybody's going to think, I can't depend on him. I can't depend on him to open the door, to shut the door. I can't depend upon him to keep a job longer than a year. I can't depend upon him to have done the reading he just said he had done. I can't depend upon him to be alone with the baby without the diaper leaking all over the living room. Right? Okay, Jody. I don't know. It always worked perfectly until this morning, so I don't know what I've done to it. Usually I can just hit the button and it stops. What do we want to be? Do we want to be soft? Or do we want to have proven character? Do we want other people to, to be able to depend on us? How do we get that without having suffering? Afflictions. Okay, you all with me. So I'm a shepherd, and I know my sheep. Okay? That's what a shepherd's supposed to know. He knows his flock. And if you were to say to me, you know, who would you, who would you put your money on in this church? You know, if you had to put money down on somebody. Do you know who I'd put my money down on? <laughs> I'm going to tell you the person's name. But stop and think. A lot of you know a lot of people here. If you were going to put your money down on somebody, who would you put your money down on? Well, it would be the person that has really suffered. Does that surprise you? No. Her name is Katie. If I had to go into a battle, I would prefer Katie to any man in this church. Why? Because she's suffered. And so I know I can depend on Katie. Now, does anybody want to gainsay me? Not one person here will argue with me. So what do you want? Do you want to have faith like Katie? Then exalt in your suffering. Because if you don't suffer, you will not have the ability to stand in grace and to exalt in your suffering. And it produces proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope doesn't disappoint. You don't want to be disappointed? This is the process. Because why? And this is the end. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. And so the, 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 the teaching that the Apostle Paul is giving us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that all these goodies, which are Standing in grace, that's what it consists of, all these goodies, all these things, end up with us not being disappointed for a reason, and the reason is the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In other words, it's the love of God that keeps us safe through all this process. God has poured his love out in our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the final point. When the Apostle Paul 
ends with that statement, is he making a theological declaration? Eh, you can say yes. Is it an objective statement of truth? Eh, you can say yes. But the thing that should, should be clear to you is this is not simply an objective doctrinal statement. This is extremely subjective. This is, remember I told you at the beginning I was going to come back, this is tender. Do you realize that for four chapters now you have heard the Apostle Paul preaching the gospel? Okay? That's what the first four chapters have been. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of it's gospel. Are you all with me? Okay? Do you know that this is the first place in the book of Romans that the Apostle Paul mentions the love of God? Here is the love of God. And it's what sustains us in this incredible pressure cooker that has been described here. It is the love of God that the Holy Spirit has poured out in our hearts. Love is what keeps us going. God loves us. And so I end by asking you, (laughs) I know it's weird, but do you feel like God loves you? Do you feel like God loves you? You say, well, what does my feelings have to do with it? I haven't thought about my feelings since I was a little boy. I say, do you feel as if God loves you? Because if you don't have a subjective, intimate, personal experience of the love of God, I call into question whether you know God. David was as manly a man as they come, and David said, Whom have I but thee? And aside from thee, I desire nothing. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my portion forever. You know, Presbyterians love to make fun of certain songs, hymns, and the principal hymn that Presbyterians always make fun of is what? In the garden. I come to the garden alone where the dew is still on the roses. And so people sing it and mock it and, you know, boy, that's such a stupid hymn. But honestly, think about it. And he with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. Listen, that's what he's talking about here. That's the experience of Christians. The Holy Spirit sheds the love of God into our hearts, and he tells me I am his own. Don't fool yourself. God's not impressed if you're an engineer in your religion. God wants people who are men like David who say, whom have I in heaven but you? People like Peter who say, Lord, to whom else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Remember, Jesus says, are you going to leave me also? And so humble yourself to exaltation. Humble yourself to rejoicing in your suffering. Humble yourself to motivating you in all of this by the love of God 
absolutely welling up in, in you because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Okay? John Lennon was right after all. Love is all we need. That's sort of a joke. Okay? But only a little bit of a joke. Let me end by reading... Uh, there's a guy named Haldane who's writing on Romans, and he stops in the middle of his comments on this section, and he quotes Martin Luther. So this is Robert Haldane quoting Martin Luther on this text, okay? Actually, no, this is on Galatians, but he quotes Luther here. He says, Luther says, where Christ is truly seen, there must needs be full and perfect joy in the Lord with peace of conscience. And that conscience, that conscience that is at peace, thinks this, okay? Although I am a sinner by the law and under condemnation of the law, yet I despair not. I die not, because Christ lives and he is my righteousness and my everlasting life. In that righteousness and life, I have no sin. I have no fear. I have no sting of conscience. I have no care of death. I am indeed a sinner as touching this present life and the righteousness of this present life as the child of Adam where the law accuses me and death reigns over me and at length it would devour me. But I have another righteousness and love life above this life which is Christ, the Son of God who knows no sin nor death, but brought into dust shall be raised up again. Excuse me. Who knows no sin nor death but righteousness and life eternal. By whom this my body being dead and brought into dust shall be raised up again and delivered from the bondage of the law and sin and shall be sanctified together with the Spirit. Okay, this is how you have to talk to yourself. And the way you talk to this, yourself this way is only because of your confidence in the love of Jesus Christ. That's it. And he has loved us. And so we proclaim his death. Greater have, love hath no man than this, that he gives up his life for his friend. So let's come and eat together. The elders, please come.